Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So today we're talking with Gunnar Ingbloom from Colibri Expeditions in Lima, Peru. How are you doing today, Gunnar? I'm fine. Hi there. <laughs> so, Gunnar, you, you know, you kind of have an, you're, you're, obviously you're not Peruvian by, <laughs> by descent. So how did you end up in Peru? Well, I'm Swedish, yeah. And um, uh, Peru is known for being one of the most uh, biodiverse countries in the world. And um, I... I studied biology, and I looked after I'd finished my sort of required classes. I looked to do something for my thesis, and uh, but I also wanted to go traveling. <laughs> I also wanted to see birds, so I I, I took a took out a map, and I was considering Colombia. I was uh, I was considering Peru, um, and uh, what happened was that Colombia was sort of thought of being very dangerous back then. I don't think it was any better in Peru, really, because it was uh, the height of the Shining Path in 1990 when I came here the first time. But eventually I, I found a, a, a good mentor uh, named uh, Jon Fjellso, who's a Norwegian guy who works in Denmark. And he, he had just uh, finished all the, the manuscripts and the plates and everything for the book that was going to come out, The Birds of the High Andes. And uh, he told me, I was all thinking, well, I want to go to the lowlands, to the Amazon, you know. So uh, I wanted to see as many birds as possible. And But he said, well, I'm not doing work in the lowlands. And I go, well, bummer. Uh, but then he talked, he, he was saying that we went to a lot of different areas where no birders had ever gone, no ornithologists had ever, ever gone. And I was amazed, you know. It was like, wow, white spots on a birding map, you know, white spots on an ornithological map. That sounds sounds like something for me, uh, and uh, so he was working in the High Andes in Polylepis forests, uh, which is like a it's, a it's a tree that grows up to four thousand four hundred four thousand five hundred meters in some places, okay. uh, and even higher than that. And it's a, it's a weird thing because you have a tree line below <laughs> the Polylepis forest, and what the theory back then was that. Uh, these uh, polylepis forests had been much more extensive in all the days, but uh, through um, clearing by preparing land for livestock, burning, grazing, gra- preparing grazing areas, uh, these forests were all fragmented into small little pockets uh, high up in the Andes. Now, it wasn't really what I was thinking of when I was, had decided to leave Sweden to do you know, half a year in South America to go up in the high Andes and have the same sort of climatic conditions as in Sweden. But but it was very interesting and very rewarding. And so what I noticed then was also that the, the big need, uh, the people didn't really realize what they were living around these areas, that they had this fantastically unique envi- uh, habitat around them, and they, it was much threatened. So I started... Uh, looking for ways of uh, getting funding together to start doing more conservation, conservation-like work in that area. So, so you initially came to Peru as a as a researcher, as a student, a graduate student. Uh, yeah, as a bio, uh, biologist. I wasn't a grad. Uh, I, you know, I hadn't graduated. I was looking for something in general to do for my bachelor's uh, thesis. Mm-hmm. But, um, and uh, I had a I had a guy in, in Stockholm that was sort of 
uh, looking at um, population ecology uh, questions that I could sort of apply in, in that sort of environment, you know, how uh, different ticks move uh, move around in the forest and foraging at different levels, except I was supposed to be looking at mm-hmm. some of those issues. But uh, conservation biology was so much more interesting, which we didn't have at our university. So I ended up sort of um, uh, astray from my main topic, you know. Right. <laughs> I got more interested into this sort of conservation of people and, and that sort of thing. So when you were saying, like, when you first came to Peru in the early 90s, and it was at the yeah. height of the Shining Path, you know, what was it like trying to be in the field when you had, you know, these Marxist guerrillas out there at the same time? Well, it was pretty scary at times because we, uh, one of the first expeditions we did, um, we we were hearing as we walked along with the, the, my fellows that were with me uh, that, you know, this uh, Shining Path group had been passing by like two days ahead of us, you know. <laughs> so it was... Uh, and then eventually we got into, uh, this one was on our second tour, uh, I was, uh, some really strange things, but eventually we, they were taking us for being Shining Path, so oh, one, of, one of the guys in our group, he was actually captured by the local community, and, you know, uh, and they were thinking he was a uh, part of this uh, green gorilla coming in, you know, <laughs> it was what, really weird, the did- military was well, yeah. Well, just because yeah. there's a collection of weirdos with binoculars out in the forest. <laughs> yeah, well, I had this, you know, big uh, parabolic microphone that I was showing around. Uh, they thought that was some tele- telecommunication system or something. And my big, we were carrying my big scope as well, you know, and I was probably like a bazooka. <laughs> and, and, and so did you did you ever have any run-ins with, with either the Shining Path or kind of the axillary groups that were hovering around at the time or...? Yeah, there was one. My this was my um, first year I was there, and um, uh, this is kind of an interesting story as well. <laughs> but uh, I I met this girl at uh, Machu Picchu, and she was so amazed that I was at that Machu Picchu because I told her, "There's like I, I just came here for Inca Ren, you know, and it's, it's a endemic bird I want to see." And she said, "What? You know, you came here for a bird, you know." So, and then eventually we talked and we, you know, we met up there once we were back in Cusco and we were, decide, we were discussing cheap ways of getting back to Lima. And I was all backpacking, you know, so, right. so looking at the cheapest way. And we found this bus that went over uh, Central High, Central Highlands, over Abancay, uh, over, uh, not into Ayacucho, but through Ayacucho Department, which was sort of the main center of the Shining Path. Yeah? And... Um, and so uh, I decided, yeah, I'll, I'll just have to take this. You know, I have two, two three days more in, in Peru for my flight going out. So this, this is the way I had to go. And uh, and I went and ran into the Shining Path you know, on the way. And they took, took everybody down from the bus. And uh, it was pretty scary. And sort of reloading the Kalashnikovs in front of me. And, so, and I had a really bad cold. And I was... Uh, suffering from the altitude and uh, it was really horrible and uh, so I tried to tell him what I was doing there you know I, I you know I'm here actually to uh, to uh, do a biology study and, and you know studying these really unique polylepis forests and, and I, I, I just want to help people 
we don't need your help. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, that was just like the wrong thing to say. In the end, they sort of understood, understood what I was doing. It was more like helping them to help themselves. Sort of thing. And then I ran into the girl again. <laughs> she said, yeah, I wouldn't have any, any problems, she said. I, I would just have discussed the French Revolution, you know. And I was, uh, you know, that was sort of a bourgeois revolution, wasn't it? So, <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> lucky, you know, she, she didn't run into them. So. Right. And, and so how, how long did the Shining Path last in Peru? When did that kind of die, die out? Well, it died down in 93, and that was uh, Fujimori had just been uh, uh, elected president in 1990. And uh, so in 1993, they had this, uh, through intelligence, you know, they, they actually found where he was at and they captured him. And he, mm-hmm. uh, then he put him in this barred uh, prison cell, like in the middle of the square. It's like a cage, you know, with bars. And, it, and he looked so ridiculous, you know, it was right. uh, everybody. And, and the whole thing just fell. It was a top down uh, organization. And, after that, you know, he was in jail, and uh, things got much, much better. And yes. '95, I started traveling sort of widely, bird watching in Peru again, into central Peru and then up to northern Peru as well. Uh, but you could see that the the people were quite, still quite influenced by the propaganda that had been um, thrown out in the past. Mm-hmm. They have this, um, they have this one story which is kind of interesting. Also, uh, it's about um, Pistacos. Pistacos are uh, fair-skinned people. Um, I was first told they were Belgian mercenaries. That was like the first thing. Well, uh, that sounds safe. Belgian mercenaries. Yeah. But they they could be any any sort of fair-skinned or or just uh, even people from Lima has been taken from Pistacos. Mm -hmm. And the, the local saying is that they come and they will steal women and children especially and they will uh, skin them, flaw them and uh, extract their fat. And um, this is widely, uh, even today, uh, there's a lot of people actually believing in this. Why and they're fat? With, yeah, exactly. But well, that's the thing. They have an explanation for that, you see. Uh, they will use the fat for either cosmetic surgery. I mean, that's sort of in the fashionable. Yeah? So, so that, that will be very important. Or it could be, um, uh, or <laughs> the best one is, they use it to run the space shuttle. <laughs> what? They use it to run the space shuttle. That's fuel. It's fuel for the space shuttle. So, Makes total sense. Yeah. Makes total sense. <laughs> But the, the funny thing, though, is that the, even today, I mean, recently, whenever there's a little bit of skirmishes, or maybe there is a smoke screen put out as well, even by by officials, there was like one and a half year ago, they had captured two pistachos, yeah? And they, they were showing these people, and they said, yeah, they had these little bottles of fat in them, you know, in Greece. And this went out on AP, you know, on, on Associated Press, all around the world. You know, they were saying they've caught, they caught these oil, oil extract, human oil extractors in Peru. And it was all bull, of course, because, uh, um, and, and you see the chief of police, they were saying, yeah, we caught these two individuals. And it was really, really serious. And it was a smokescreen for something political going on in, at the same time. But anyway, all the people, they all believe this. And, and, but the, then the doctors were saying, well, you know, if we would need all this uh, human fat, you know, there's no, there's no, uh, 
there's surplus, you know. There's all these people doing <laughs> the, doing liposuction, you know. We could have as much as we want to, you know. And uh, if 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 it was so highly priced, more people would have liposuction and just sell their fat, you know. <laughs> It'd be quite easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so you go, you were mistaken for a pish taco. Well, several times, yeah. And, <laughs> they, and so they magnify when we were driving around in, in the in the central highway. And I was sort of smiling and waving to the kids on the road, and they were throwing them off the road as like, pish taco, pish taco, horrible. <laughs> and eventually, so so that was the areas that I'm visiting today, you know. And now mm-hmm. now people are very friendly. But, uh, they they were uh, very suspicious. And so it was just the shining path. We're telling them, you know, anyone with fair skin is doing this fat collection. We're using, we're using the myth. Uh, yeah. The myth is longer than that. I mean, it's, it's older than that. It's probably originated maybe by colonial times, you know, when Spanish, Spanish first arrived, mm-hmm. or even before that. You know? So it's something that has been around for some, quite some time. Um, but it was, you know, it could, could be used for the propaganda and brainwashing. So. Right. So, you know, you went through this period when you first arrived in Peru where the travel wasn't necessarily safe, but now it's very safe to travel. Is it pretty yeah, much safe yeah. everywhere in the country to travel? And Everywhere in the country. There's some areas I would take um, I, I would take specific care if I would go there, and uh, those include areas like in um, south-central Peru uh, on the uh, Parimac River. There's a place called San Francisco. There's a road now that goes between the central um, Cusco, the, like the northern part of Cusco department, and you can actually cross over on a on a new road that goes through pretty virgin uh, cloud forest in the Vilcabamba range, which is very interesting. With exact, exactly this sort of area I was mm-hmm. studying at the beginning. So I would uh, I would love to go there uh, again to that area, but I wouldn't recommend you know people not speaking Spanish going there or mm-hmm. going there with local advice but otherwise apart from that the whole country or everywhere where we run tours is totally safe Uh, there's been problems with road robberies you know that's the sort of thing that you can encounter in South America but even that has been taken care of actually very much in the last year year and a half or so uh, I, now they're the uh, remnants of uh, the civil guard or whatever you should call them, the ronderos, which were uh, they were armed peasants actually during during the the conflict years. Uh, they still uh, exist uh, in their structure, so <clears throat> they um, now uh, help out securing security uh, along the major highways. So when I was in northern Peru, now we were actually passing several of these uh, ronderos and they are getting a uh, sort of uh, education and, uh, and uh, training also how to deal you know if they capture someone you know he's supposed to be put to trial and not to be <laughs> lynched by the mob or so so to speak so, so they're getting all these sort of democratic uh, things as well and, and help out usually right. what you do when you, when you pass these groups is that you leave one sold at about fifty cents or so right. as a contribution. So that that's how how they are financed by the same people that pass the area, and it works. You know, it, it works. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have been my ideal solution, you know, but uh, uh, you know, it, it works. So, so. It always reminds me when you get paid these people. You know, this, this kind of corruption is 
I was talking with, I was having dinner with a guy in Costa Rica and he said, you know, what's great about the corruption here? Everybody can afford to buy in. (laughs) (laughs) In one way or another. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's it's pretty much the case also with with the police, the police checkpoints are often notorious about that. You know, they always try to find some little thing that you don't have an order on your car, you know, whatever. And they're not really, they're not really going to give you a fine. You know, the only thing you're fishing for is a little, something. Right, a couple bucks in their pocket, and. But uh, usually, I I'm pretty good at talking ourselves out of that sort of situation. Anyway, I don't like I don't like to give bribes. I don't I don't do bribes. Well, and and you go to the same places enough that you probably start the you know the cops recognize you and you recognize them that kind of situation. Um, well, sometimes I have quite a bit of turnover, and we have other guides also. I don't do all the guiding myself. Right. Someone has to look after the company as well. So you're in Peru as a young man in the, in the early '90s. When did you make the decision? That, what's that? Are you calling me old? As a young man, yeah. I'm, I'm calling you experienced. Okay. <laughs> no, but you're you're, you're there as a, as, as a younger man in the in the '90s. When did you make the decision to uh, live full time? Uh, well, in '95, I met uh, I met a girl that I really liked, and I I had been divorced then. Five years, yeah. so uh, and I pretty much I decided that I was 35, mm-hmm. and uh, I had to decide, you know, is this it or isn't it? I, I you know, I, I can't know for sure, but as usual, I, I you know, I, I got in with both feet. So uh, in '98, three years later, after I've been been commuting back and forth quite a bit, um, I decided to to make make this it and um, I moved everything I, I brought all my books and everything from Sweden I emigrated and um, yeah, here I am and you've been there ever since. now so was your intention to to start running a bird guiding company at that time yeah I I already was guiding since uh, 1987 I was guiding for a Swedish company and uh, it was a um, Something I would, is sort of my roots in a way. That they had a very interesting concept. They they were running tours not so much for birders but for people interested in nature. I mean, you generalists that you um, you have a lot of uh, people that are, are interested in nature, not necessarily knowing a lot, but very eager to learn more. And it's it's a very European thing that's been going on for a, for a long time. That this sort of that sort of tours are all over. Uh, European operators, not so much in the U.S. I mean, U.S. are you're either birder or you're not, sort of. Right. Is. But these are sort of nature watching tours, and you're guided by biologists that would tell you stories uh, about the birds, about the plants, uh, more more plants than birds, really, because they're stay put. Not everybody in the group will have binoculars, but you will, you know, you will lend them yours, but you will. Recommend everyone to have binoculars. Right. Bring them, and I think the case today is probably even more people bring the cameras rather than binoculars. And uh, but but nevertheless, it's a it's an interesting concept um, where uh, where and it's very rewarding. So I was guiding like that for since 1997, 
at various parts of uh, southern southern Europe and also in uh, Latin America. And as I gained more and more uh, experience in Ecuador and Peru, I was also assigned to, to guide here. So in '95, when I was uh, when I met my wife, I was actually guiding one of those tours, and that, that wasn't even a it wasn't even a birding tour. It was a cultural tour, tour mm-hmm. uh, with people that wanted to see the interculture and the, you know, the Highland Indians and all that. But it passed through a very interesting uh, an area with sort of the Southern Circuit, where you basically the the coast, uh, the, the Guano Islands of uh, Ballestas, where they have a sea lion colony and lots of seabirds, and you went up to uh, uh, you went up to uh, Lake Titicaca, where there's um, very nice reed beds with lots of birds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even though these were, uh, well, I remember one story I like to tell is that once I had one of these groups with non-birders, and they were very excited when we got to Paracas because they were saying, Gunnar, Gunnar, there's this big, huge black bird out there with, with a completely red head, and it's beautiful. And it was a turkey vulture. <laughs> and most birders would not make that sort of remark of it. Turkey vulture. So I thought, right. you know, that's very rewarding. And the same thing I, I said to the group, you know, they were non-birds. I said, well, tomorrow morning before you guys go to breakfast, I'm going to be out at Lake Titicaca. It was just outside the door from the hotel. So mm-hmm. I was going to be down by the reed beds and I'm going to look for birds. Anyone want to join me? So it was like a 6, mo- 6 a.m. start for people that had never been boarding before. <laughs> and out, out of that group of like 24, it was 19 or 21 or so that actually got up at six o'clock looking. Oh, that's looking great! So, so, so that sort of that sort of uh, experience is, is very nice when you're a guide. And so you were doing this guiding, and then you, you decided to start your. Did you start your own company then in '98? Yeah, I, I had a company back in Sweden that I was sort of lending services to uh, to major majorly to the company that I worked for, the Swedish company that I worked for called Tema. But um, I also arranged a couple of tours as I was gaining experience in South America. I, I arranged a tour to, uh, actually in 90, must have been in 94 or so, yeah, in 94, we arranged a tour through Tema to Peru to watch wildlife and nature as well, through my company and, and through Tema. And there was other tours that I made uh, to Ecuador and to, uh, to Venezuela before that, also with my old company. So when I got to uh, uh, when I got to Peru, I decided, okay, I'm I'm going to provide birding nature services here, and I, I can probably get some some work from Tema as well. Mm-hmm. This first years. So in '98, I started pulling the expeditions. Right, and and Peru, you know, what what is the total number of species or approximate number of species in Peru? Well, it's uh, I can't remember exactly what the exact number is now of official uh, South American Checklist Committee as numbers, but I think it's in the range of of the recognized species is about seventeen hundred eighty or so. Something like that, but it, there's a bunch of hypothetical there as well. Right. So the true number with with the hypothetical, which are basically site records that would, um, and, and and even in some cases, say there are photos and stuff on the internet of mm-hmm. the same bird. So I would say that prob- probably around 1850 is uh, is a good number. A good number. And 
with that number, we're sort of second to uh, to Colombia, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, almost up, you know up around there with uh, with Brazil as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brazil has officially passed Peru uh, um, in total numbers of recognized species in uh, by the South American Checklist Committee. But it also has to do that both Peru, uh, both Brazil and and Colombia has much more active uh, ornithologists, you know, within the country that are actually publishing a lot. Peruvians mm-hmm. uh, have not been so good on, on, on this until recently, I, I should say, because it's a, look, it's a big, big thing going on right now. There's more and more people getting involved. We've, we've got a digital uh, journal now that comes out uh, on a regular basis that is peer-reviewed. And so that's good as well. Mm-hmm. There's opportunity for everyone that wants to to publish, and uh, people are encouraged also to publish. So so that's good. There's a rarity committee uh, sort of uh, that has also taken off in the in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So things are moving the right way. Uh, well, and, and it seems to me, you know, from my cursory research of Peru, that it's such a varied landscape. There's you know the deserts and. So it seems like, you know, they'd have a lot of species just because of the uniqueness of habitat, you know, the west side of the Andes, the east side of the Andes, the Andes themselves. Yeah, and the little pockets, you know, every every sort of, every mountain, every valley gets uh, different conditions, which is if the conditions in that valley is stable throughout the eons, mm-hmm. uh, then you can have, uh, there could be a species evolving in that little valley, and in the rounding, it's... Uh, Around it, it would be um, either too dry or, or, or too too, uh, too unstable the habitat, so it can really persist with the population. And then, then you get you get a lot of endemism. There there's about 110, 120 endemic species, depending on how you how you uh, <coughs> how you count them, and depending how many we have lost to uh, Ecuador and Bolivia recently. But but uh, but it's around around that area. Yeah. So, you know, you spoke of endemics, and I saw the picture on your website. I was looking at it, and then I saw, I did a review of the Owls of the World, that the photographic guide that just came out. And there's that, what is it, the long-whiskered owlet? Exactly, yeah. So where is that thing, and what's kind of the story with this bird? Uh, It has a good story also. Um, uh, It's a small, very, very small owl. It was first discovered in in research that the Louisiana State University was doing in, in the Andes. Up in this is in, in the northern part of the Peru, yeah? and uh, and there's low. Uh, I, I would say in and I was saying Andes, but it's actually low ridges uh, that are about two thousand two thousand five hundred meters high, mm-hmm. and they were doing and and they're very sort of strange vegetation there. It looks like it will be. Vegetation of four thousand meters, but it's actually just at two thousand five hundred. And it's, it's rich top uh, vegetation, and it's uh, small, compact, very gnarly trees and so forth. And it found it this really weird owl, and we collected it. And then it found it in another rich top a little bit further east, and they were saying, "Yeah, this is the completely new owl, and it's, uh, it's a new genus, Cynoglaubes, and it's." Um, and they they were considering even because they had a very small sternum maybe it's flightless, and uh, so uh, and time goes on nobody when we started going back in '95 everyone was dreaming of trying to see this thing, 
nada. People were out at, at night, same area, trying to record, you know, uh, voices. Nothing happened, nothing happened. And then in like, um, you have to check up the dates here, exactly how it's going. Right. Goes. But it was, let's say it was in 2005 or so, okay? Uh, Dan Lane and others, uh, Thomas Valky here from Peru, and, and uh, another researcher from the Louisiana State University did, did a follow-up on the, their original study. And this time they went higher up on the mountain slope. There is there is a high, fairly high peak there also in the, at the pass area. So rather than just staying at the pass, they actually went up to over 3,000 meters, 3,500, whatever. And they were doing stations along the way. And uh, they spent a summer, a uh, northern summer, which usually is dry season. And I read Dan Lane's report on this, and it was like... It was rain all the time, and it was very unusual. But the, the forest there is that such way. You can, um, I mean, I, I've been there right now during the rainy season. I just came back from Northern Peru about a week ago. And uh, we had great, uh, you know, great uh, time most of the time. We had a few, a little bit of rain in the high, in the Abra area where, where the longest get out it is. But it wasn't that it was destroying a burning or anything. But anyway, so they were there in camp feeling pretty, uh, <clears throat> pretty hopeless. And uh, one night, um, well, actually, it was one of the field workers uh, had, had actually brought back this <laughs> from the bags. There were they were netting birds, yeah. Mm-hmm. And they, so they had brought back this bag with it that had the owlet in it, and it was showing it the next day. It was staying in the tent. Yeah? And so Dan Lane saw this, and I decided, yeah, well, okay, we kept alive for one day. Let's keep them alive another day. Also, they were collecting birds. Yeah, so right. But anyway, so, and, and because they wanted more information, and they actually kept it in the tent at night in order to try to get it to make a sound. So eventually they actually made a recording of this bird. And, uh, and that recording was spread around, and then people started looking for it. And again, nothing. <laughs> the areas oh. where it was supposed to be, nothing. Some people went up the same slope and they heard it. I don't think anyone actually saw it up there again on that same slope. Uh, and then there were researchers from uh, ECOAN, uh, the um, conservation organization in Peru funded by the American Birding uh, Conservancy uh, and others. And they were, uh, there were people, there were actually people that had been working for me before, uh, David Gale and Juvenal uh, Cavana. Uh, they were doing uh, sort of a little bit of limiting their land, checking out exactly where the borders are and checking out the birds they could be seen. So they were doing this one trail in the other Patricia area. And they stumbled across along with Skirala during daytime. And this was only, say, I don't know, three, four years ago. Uh, the Owlet Lodge was being, uh, being built uh, at this time. And uh, this was far from the Owlet Lodge. So uh, this caught some attention, and people say, "Well, at least we know exactly where it is during the daytime. Maybe we can find it now during the night as well." So people went to that same area, and uh, the first people that did so uh, were Nick Affinis and, uh, and Frank Lambert, and uh, they went camping, probably in pretty rough conditions as well, for several nights, and had nothing. Uh, again, nothing. And then they came back to the lodge. That had been completed, and this is only like could be like three three years ago. So right, whatever. 
uh, and they came back to the lodge and they heard it from the lodge itself, <laughs> like 150 meters from the lodge. So they went in and they saw the bird. They got some really excellent recordings and uh, those recordings have been used uh, afterwards. Now, that's not the end of the story. So people were starting flocking to uh, the Owlet Lodge to see the Owlet and they all dipped. They, some, some people heard it, very few people saw it at the same spot where Frank Lambert and, and the Gatlinus had seen it. So then I was actually there and I got this news from one guy that sent, <laughs> passed on, <laughs> on YouTube, a video, a video all of a sudden of an outlet at another place, you know? Mm -hmm. I was going, what? What am I doing here? It was the same time, it was a beautiful full moon. I, I could not find the outlet. This was two and a half years ago. Huh? <laughs> I could not see the outlet. And I was, a guy only like, as the bird flies 30 or 40 kilometers away, was filming it, you know? <laughs> and and I, I, was, <laughs> I was going, I have to go to this place. So a few months later, this place is called Esperanza. It's a, it's a, uh, it, it's a uh, <clears throat> place where they are running uh, uh, research for primates. There's some really good primates in this area. There's an endemic night monkey, the Indian night monkey. And there's the star of the show is the yellow-tailed woolen monkey. So they're doing research and, and conservation on that. And he was there all, you know, to check out the birds. And uh, so uh, he passed this uh, video around. And eventually I, 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 I was able to go to this place as well. And I went with um, uh, uh, one client, um, Ron Orenstein, I think it was. I can't remember which one of them, but I think right. it was Ron Orenstein. Anyway, and uh, we were supposed to meet at the place where the trail starts, and he was delayed. He was uh, he was traveling from Lima, and um, <laughs> I was waiting and waiting. And the guy was saying, "We have to go. We have to go." And I have to, I have to wait. I have to wait for this for this guy. So so eventually he showed up like six o'clock in the afternoon, and we had it was always already getting dark. We had dinner, and then we decided to go in the dark in the mud. And it was a horrendous hike. It was the worst. I mean, I run the marathon, right? So right. this was the worst. <laughs> I, I tell you, it was really horrible. It was a horrible hike, very muddy. And and uh, in the middle of the night, I was swearing and cussing and everything. So eventually, we got to the place at Esperanza. There's little cabins there. And it was like 2.30 in the morning. And um, 9, 9. 8.30 to 2.30 in the morning, in the middle of the night, walking, walking. It was like some boot camp hike or something. Right. <laughs> something so you wouldn't have done on a dare. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have done that on a dare. No. So eventually we got there, and uh, and Ron was just, uh, he was exhausted. So, uh, I, I mean, I was pretty, I could have you know, dropped dead right there, but I said, well, I came this far. So I asked the guys there. I want to go up to the site. Where, where, where is it? Where, I want to go to the site. Is it right, right around here? Can we go? Can we go? Can we go? And then it took me up this slope. <laughs> I ordered down all this walking. And it was the steepest hill. I, I swear to God, it was the steepest hill. It wasn't far. It, it was only probably like a K or so. But it was like this. Right. And there was no trail. I was like, like sort of zigzagging up, you know, like, like we like it, you know. But it was straight up. And so I eventually got there. And when I got there, I said, I'm not going to go down now. I'm, I'm just going to stay here. And uh, I said, you know, I said before I went up, if, if we hear something, well, well I'll, I'll send something down to call you. you know, I, I'll come and get you. I said, I'll come and get you. I'll, I'll, I sent someone there. Yeah. But so the birds started calling. 
there. And the guy was saying, yeah, do some playback, do some playback, we'll come closer. I, I, I did like one bout, and then it was closer again. I was like, and then I, I, I can't, I can't t get this bird out, see it, then call, call the people down there uh, to, to get Ron, to, for him to get up, for him to see it. And um, so I said, well, I'm not going to play anymore. Don't get the, the other guy. So he, he got up there like an hour before break of dawn. And uh, we heard it. We heard it going further and further away. Oh, and no. So I didn't see it at that point. But uh, to me, it wasn't really um, the recent ABA discussion. Do you count herd birds? Yeah. I, I yeah. count herd birds. So for me, it was a tick. Anyway, so I was pleased by hearing it. Uh, I'll see it one day. I'll see it. And uh, I actually had my best views now about two weeks ago. I had a flush view. Um, people that count birds, they see some people count flush you know, birds that just fly, fly away. They right. see the whole you know, They know what it was. But it wasn't very satisfactory. I, I think my hearing the bird was more satisfactory than the first view of the bird I had. Mm -hmm. But now on this last trip, I actually saw the bird. But I had to stay out. You know, I, my, my clients gave up. They gave up about 10, 10 p.m. And I, there was uh, on, so I, I, I didn't finish the story. After the Esperanza episode, I was actually found again closer uh, to the lodge at the Owlet Lodge. So now it's a hike of about one kilometer. It's a steep downhill hike to start with, usually at in, uh, in the morning. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's, uh, most people can do it, but I would tell you also this, most people don't have the stamina to actually, or or the dedication maybe. Most, a lot of, a lot of the birds want to see the bird, but but sometimes you just have to do what it takes, you know. And so uh, for me, what we did, the first night we went out at, at uh, just before, um, just before getting dark and um, birded a little bit on the way and got down there during the daytime. And then we gave up around well, we had to say, well, we're going to have dinner at 8. So, is it dinner time now? Okay, so we had to go back. And, 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 get it. and the second night, we went down again, and then after, we had an early dinner, and I went down. And uh, the client I was with, and gave up at 10 o'clock or so. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, often, that, that was a perfect night also, because it had, uh, uh, it was moonlit. For some reason, I'm most of the times I've heard it, actually, been very clear night. You, have, you hear a lot of insects in all the recordings, also where where uh, where you have the bird uh, that you can find on Sino Countries, also with all the insects in the background. Yeah, so mm -hmm. so they probably need clear nights and uh, fairly good weather. Uh, at least at least that's my experience. And and there was a, almost a full moon. And um, the thing was on this trailer is actually two. Two individuals. So it's one at 1k, around 1k, one point, one between 900 and 1.3 or so. Right. And there's and there's one that is around 2,500. So I said, well, I'm going to walk down to 2,500. That's not recommended. Right. <laughs> it's a very 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 tough trail to do in the middle of the night. Actually, stream bed and uh, very slippery and muddy and rocky and everything. But not very nice. And then I as I came back now on this last trip from those 2,500. Uh, I actually had it close to where we were. It was like at one, one at twelve hundred. We were sitting at more than like nine hundred fifty or so, and checking out. 
and and the better we do, I I could hear it when I passed back at at the point where where we had been sitting. So uh, I don't think that it was well. Basically, I decided to start calling a bit later. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do I know? It was around midnight when I when I first heard it. So. And so, what are your ideas on that outlet of its actual, you know, the range of the species, and then maybe do you have a feel for how many individuals there might be? Well, the range is from the Colan uh, Mountains, which is for a little bit further east. If you look at the map, uh, the Colan Mountains starts around Bagua. That's uh, that's its known range, and then it continues all over uh, over the uh, Abra Patricia area. Uh, there are now uh, researchers from Ecuador actually went up uh, near Pomacochas where the marvelous tail is, and they went up in that in that area uh, and to do some survey and they, they're creating some um, uh, community reserve there in that area also, and it should it should probably be there as well. So so uh, there will be more sites I'm pretty certain uh, eventually the way you can see it. But mm-hmm. as for now, the best. The best site is the, um, the Owlet Lodge run by Ekron. And um, I was saying, I was saying, it was thought that it was flightless. It's not. I was going to say, you said it, you saw it flush. It was like, obviously, it's not flightless. It does fly, yeah. And, and so, you know, how many are, are you starting to see an increase of birders who are wanting that species, who are coming to you and saying, hey, could you find me the long whiskered owlet? Uh, yeah. Um, it's definitely among the top birds that that people want to see, but the, the top attraction in the area is, of course, marvelous patchy tail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you come for the marvelous patchy tail, the longest owlet would be the bonus. Right. Now, there's another bird also that people are very much uh, interested in in that region. It, it's the the um, the one that is on the cover of uh, bird um, of uh, birds in Peru. It's the uh, scarlet banded barbet. There's recently been a discovery of a new site for that, and I just went to it, and we could actually drive up to the old to the site, and that was on my last trip as well. And it took us uh, about two days, but it's like walking distance from this village, so, so you can have the village. It's still a, bit, a little bit of hush hush uh, from the people that discovered it, but. Uh, it's it's out there and, and, and people are going. You know, there's been some groups that have been going there already. So that's an additional bonus in the northern Peru circuit right now. You have marvelous spectacle. You have this uh, enigmatic uh, scarlet banded barbet discovered in 1995, uh, described in 2000. It's a new spectacular mm-hmm. barbet, uh, and uh, you know, it was found in Cordillera Azul. Uh, and then now that's available as well. Uh, so there's a lot of good birds up, up, up on the northern circuit. On the northern circuit. Now you you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about the shining path that you know you were going for the Inca dove at Machu Picchu. Inca wren. Inca wren. Sorry, Inca dove. I see. I'm stuck that's with. <laughs> I'm stuck in my North American mindset. But <laughs> so with the you know the Inca wren. Um, how is the birding generally along Machu Picchu? Because to me, that sounds like a perfect location because it's a mix of history and culture and, you know, maybe a little touristy, but is it good birding there as well? I say it's, it's I mean, if northern Peru is still, um, there's some areas that are challenging in, in infrastructure. Uh, so you need, you need to have a little bit of uh, flex, flexibility there. 
some places are very good, but it's not as it's not as developed if you know Costa Rica or if you know mm-hmm. Ecuador. Uh, it's not as developed as that. But the South, uh, in contrast, is very well developed. So you can make a very interesting. Say you, you know, if you're in a, you're birding, you're just one person in the family birding, and the other, you know, your spouse is not birding, uh, but in, interested in general nature and especially culture. Well, the Southern Circuit is brilliant because it gets gets both, you know, and uh, and you visit places like Nazca, Paracas, uh, Arequipa, Colca Canyon, Titicaca, Cusco. And the Inca ruins, and you can combine it with uh, at Machu Picchu, and then you can combine it with the um, uh, lowland experience, also like the the rainforest of southeastern Peru. Is I I swear it's the best Amazon rainforest you can ever visit. If you want to go, if you you know put your finger on the Amazon and put one spot where you can go and have the best wildlife and the best infrastructure and the best, easiest way to get there. It's Puerto Maldonado and, and the mountain park uh, and the Tampopata area, those areas. Uh, and, and other areas around the Puerto Maldonado as well. You can go up to Rio Amigos, to Rio Las Piedras, you can go to Heath. But it's just, it's very, very dense with wildlife. You get giant otters and macaws flying around very close to the city, uh, you can do day tours, you know, from the city uh, to see a lot of spectacular wildlife. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's no other place in South America that, uh, in, in the Amazon that, that has that so close to a, 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 a general right. central <coughs> place where you can get jets landing, you know. Right. So and, the and southeast, southeast is definitely, like, if it's the first time in in Peru, you're not certain. You're not a dead hardcore birder. You want a wildlife experience. You want uh, you want the culture. You want the Inca, the Inca culture, and the Machu Picchu ruins. And what's coming in very, very strongly in the last couple of years is food. Right. Peruvian food is the best in in South America. Second, well, you know, it's up there with the Mexican cuisine. There's, there's yeah. two places in in. Uh, in Latin America, which has good food, is Mexico. What have I heard in Lima? Uh, ceviche, really ceviche, big, exactly. real, real big on ceviche. Yeah, you should have a ceviche in Lima. You should not have it up in the highlands. You should have it in Lima. <laughs> and Lima is very nice. I mean, Lima is in some ways a horrible city. There's a lot of noise. You can probably hear it up from my window right now. I haven't heard anything. Oh, well. <laughs> lot, lots of car alarms. <laughs> Car alarms, yeah, yeah, it's all car alarms, and they're honking their horns, and and I'm living in a pretty quiet neighborhood, I can tell you. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Lima also is the fusion of all the cuisine from uh, all around uh, Peru, and we have this very, um, uh, let's say, he's, he's great. It, it, it's this chef that has started almost, it's almost he that did it on on his own. You know, he's mm-hmm. really big motivator. He was saying that. Um, you know, food in Peru is good. We should we should be proud of it. It's Gastón Acurio. He's opened up restaurants all over the world right now. But he also started a couple of years ago this food festival in Lima. So uh, rather than sort of putting himself on the showpiece, like a lot of star chefs would do, he's actually inviting people from all around Peru to come and show the best cuisine. 
And it's a food festival that lasts now. This last year was lasting for about five, six days. It's always run in September. And uh, you uh, you go around now in all the towns in, uh, along the Southern Circuit, you can be sure that there is a gourmet restaurant in every, in every place. Really? So you can, you can eat your way through Peru as well. Well, that sounds uh, like a plan. Yeah. <laughs> And so what, what's kind of the, because I've heard, you know, like Lima and ceviche, but what would be kind of like an example of like a national dish? Yeah, well, uh, ceviche is sort of considered the, the flag, you know, yeah. the thing that people talk about. But it, as you say, it's coastal. Another thing that is very popular all around uh, uh, Peru is uh, lomo saltado. And it's uh, basically beef. Uh, it's actually Chinese influence. We have a big Chinese uh, population in, uh, in Lima, and uh, the the Peruvian cuisine has actually influenced a lot by the Chinese. So it's stir-fried beef, onions, potatoes, and uh, tomato, and often some ginger, sometimes a little bit spicy peppers as well. And, and this is served with white rice. And that's, you get that almost everywhere in, in, in Peru. It's Lomo Saltado. Uh, when I first came in 1990, I tell you, it was not very good. <laughs> the cuisine in general in Peru. Uh, it was the pollo, pollo a la brasa. That was everywhere. It was fried chicken. Fried chicken everywhere. And, uh, but it's, it's getting... getting well, that's inter- so it's interesting. The culture... The, so as the country's become more stable, the food culture has kind of exploded. Yeah, well, it's very much part of this uh, this chef uh, Gaston Acurio, his his movement. Uh, with his, you know, he invited other chefs also in the, into this sort of, and they're all uh, they're all sort of promoting uh, Peruvian food on the national level, uh, but also internationally, and it's getting it's getting very very big. Um, and then of course you can always have one of these famous drinks, the pisco sour, which is. Uh, Pisco is a uh, is an interesting. Uh, uh, it's actually a hard hard liquor, and uh, we're so poor on making wine in Peru. You never heard of any Peruvian wines, have you? No. <laughs> no. But they grow a lot of grapes, you know, and so you would think they had a lot of wines. No, yeah. they all make liquor out of it straight away. You know, they don't take what's left over in the winemaking. You know, they they ferment the musk, the the grapes yeah. themselves. There's some four or five varieties that are used for this, and they're all very old varieties. They're all that's brought by the by the uh, the, the first uh, conquistadors, you know, the first wine that was grown in right. the country. Now, now it's sort of developed into very specific brands, and and they make uh, brandy or pisco out of this, you know, they distill it. So they and they it, skipped the whole wine thing and just went right to hard liquor. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, and, and from the pisco um, you uh, mix three parts of pisco it's a recipe for pisco sour everyone that's looking three parts of pisco uh, one part of lime juice it should be the small little round limes yeah, not the bigger right. ones small round yeah. ones don't press them to try out to get this last bit out of it because then it becomes bitter you have to just get the juice out okay right and then uh, uh, so it's one part of that, and one p- uh, part of cocktail sugar. It, you can probably do some liquid sugar on your own, or just make ordinary sugar if yeah. you don't have any sugar. But one part of cocktail sugar, and then you put that in a mixer, 
uh, in the blender, it will blend. And uh, then uh, ice cubes, uh, you know, four, five, six ice cubes. You have to consume all the ice, or or you have to filter it. I also I forgot. You put in half an egg uh, egg white, half an egg white, so you get a foam experience. Yeah. Okay. So all this sort of world together, and you have to be certain that there's no ice in the actual when you pour it into the glass. It's good if you have cold ingredients already, and you have a cold glass to pour it into the glass. It gets a little foam on top, and then two, three drops of Angostura bitter on top. Lovely. Oh, really? But now, this is a warning. Don't buy Chilean Pisco. Buy Peruvian Pisco. <laughs> because if you buy a Chilean Pisco, you know, you know Chile. They make right. great wine, right? Also, so it's the worst they, grapes. They, well, they would not use the grapes straight to make Pisco. Right. So they, they're not doing it the right way. Right. Uh, they, it's called Pisco as well. And and so uh, you know, Even, and the Chileans know this, of course. So when they go to a restaurant, they ask for Peruvian pisco. They, they ask for Peruvian Chile. pisco. <laughs> and and so you know, you have this this food culture now, you know, becoming emergent in Peru, and the pisco sour. And the thing that I've always been interested in is what are the kind of the cultural values with, with Peruvians and and their birds? I knew there was a there was a spiritual and cultural value with the Inca and the Condor. So what are the kind of the current values of the people in Peru? Um, okay, the Condor I think is still very much a, a uh, has a big value. Um, there's even this uh, it's illegal now and it's, uh, it needs to be. Uh, control. There's a fiesta where they put the condor on the back of a bull. Mm-hmm. There weren't no bulls here in Inca times, so it's not uh, an old tradition that they could uh, say that. Well, we've done this since the Incas. Uh, some people say, well, this is like a representation of the Incas and the, the conquistadors. The uh, usually the condor wins. Uh, but it became such a such. They were filming this all over the you know TV channels all over the world. This festival, and uh, at least back then there was only one one or two places doing it, and uh, they were uh, they were venerating the condor throughout the year. They would never kill or, or do any harm to a condor, but they would catch one or two per year to make this festival. The rest of the time they're semi deities. They is that how you pronounce it? Deities, Deities? Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so um, they were. It was important to treat the condors well because they would carry the messenger back to the Apu, the the gods of the mountains. Yeah. And uh, now, though, this has become totally out of hand. There's now like forty, fifty of these festivals, there, or even more, in, ju- in this just one department of Aparima. And there's other places I want to do it as well. So they outlawed it, and it needs to be controlled. The other bird I would say that has a very, very cultural high value as well is the uh, cock of the rock, uh, which is the uh, the national bird of Peru. Uh, strangely enough, yeah, because uh, the national birds of Venezuela, Ecuador, Chile, Bolivia, uh, did I forget anyone there? Uh, Colombia is the condor. But in, everyone sort of think Peru condor, right? It's right. not a national bird. Oh, um, it's officially. Official. <laughs> Maybe we can do something. About it. Maybe we can do do something about it. You know, have a contest or something. You know? Right. I don't know. 
and, but the, the cock of the rock is uh, is important also. All the school children will learn about the cock of the rock. Right. And now, there's another one also that inspired uh, the the Chilean flamingo, flamingo inspired to the Peruvian flag, according to legends. So that also okay. has, a, has a status there. So you know when you t- when you have clients come and, and you're birding in Peru, you know what's kind of your favorite? Is southern more accessible, or is it the northern Peru? What's where's, where where would where would you ideally go? Oh. Oh. Maybe I should just answer central. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle, yeah. <laughs> right in the middle because I haven't talked anything about that. Well, they, they, um, no, I like I like both northern Peru uh, for all the endemics and all the special birds you get there. The southern Peru because of the infrastructure, the food, it's easier to operate. Uh, the Manu Road is second to none mm-hmm. when it comes to you know, bird diversity. Uh, you have it recorded on the list for that from Cusco, you go from Cusco down to the lowlands, well, it's over 1,050 species of birds that have been recorded along that way. You, know, okay. you spend two weeks there and you get like two, 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 two and a half weeks, you get 600 species. You know, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's overwhelming. Uh, but I, I should say something about Central Peru also because it's, yeah. it's not as well developed, but it's and there are some good infrastructure in some places where you can go to because it's the area very popular for the limenios. The people in Lima, they will go in the weekends or even the longer holidays. If they don't want to spend a lot of money, they will go inland. You can reach it by very good national buses, sleeper buses. And there's some really great uh, birding sites also in the, north, the northern part of the central area uh, is Carpish Mountains. Um, where you have things like Goldenback Mountain Tanager and Endemic Birds, spectacular, huge Tanager. Uh, mm-hmm. There's an oil bird cave further, further along down in Tingo Maria. There's the Kunin Grebe, critically threatened Kunin Grebe on the way, that you can see as well. And there's some very good areas very close to Lima that you pass through the way, such as the Santa Eulalia Valley. And we have the Daidin Sandpiper Plover three and four hours from Lima. We get condors also three hours from Lima up in the mountains, you know. So central Peru is definitely. And then we have, further south, we have the project that I've been sort of working with for, for many years along the Satipa Road. It's a road almost as good as uh, the famous Manu Road. Um, there's hardly no infrastructure whatsoever, but the local community now built a small little uh, lodging, more like a hostel or... or they have six beds with right. a wall, in but but uh, but it's still a good base, and the, and the birding is fantastic, and they're very 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 friendly people. They're not calling me Pistacco anymore, so right. they're uh, they're very nice. They're very nice. <laughs> and we work we work in that peop- uh, that project together with an American Austin based uh, organization, Technical, and it's a good organization to support. The, they're called Rainforest Partnership, mm-hmm. and they're based out of. Austin Forest Partnership. Now, in, in this kind of switch gears, I know that you've been really involved in social media and birding. That's kind of a way to promote birding and promote Peru. Um, how, you know, what do you think has been the value of social media towards birding? Where do you think it's going for birders? Yeah, well, I, I said pretty early, I saw this in Facebook. I said this, you know, I was I was saying, you're allowed to have 5,000 friends on Facebook. And I said, every, every birder should have five 5,000 birding friends on Facebook. 
because I, I think it's a, a very, very extremely valuable network mm-hmm. where you can connect with burgers all around the world, uh, will be, uh, we'll be empowered by having these connections. We're already very good at it, but we will be even more empowered. And we, can, we will be able, as, uh, as conservationists, also to start moving mountains, you know, if we get better, better and better connected. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very, very valuable to have, have these uh, uh, social media uh, connections. Um, where it's going from here also, I know that uh, I've been sort of trying to uh, look a little bit. I like Google Plus a lot, uh, probably more than... Uh, Facebook, but then again, most people are on Facebook. You know, so right. you have you have to put your major asset where people are, and it's hard to do everything. But it, it's worthwhile to keep uh, the the Google Plus and and the Twitter alive as well. I don't use Twitter that much nowadays. I, I used to use it much more. Um, yeah, where is it going from here? It's hard to say. I think more and more people are sort of forced into Facebook, whether they like it or not. I've been seeing some faces of people that were saying, what a total waste of time, you know, right. I don't have time for that. And all of a sudden, they're on Facebook posting, you know. Yeah. But it's valuable. I mean, if you if you can keep a balance, sometimes yeah. it's hard. I suffer myself sometimes, you know, and sometimes you, know, you don't get anything done. You just keep you're stuck on Facebook when yeah. you have other things to do. Right. Um, so, so it's it's a bit dangerous, but but it's um, uh, it it needs to be done. It's good to be connecting with people, and I think also the other thing, which I've been experimenting a little bit also, is that I think it's fantastic as a growing ground for birding. We can promote birding to people who are not birders in Facebook. I mean. Mm-hmm. Think about it. If you post a bird photo, not all of your friends are birders. Uh, most, well, maybe most of my friends are birders. But anyway, um, but uh, but you have you know you know I have people that you you are connecting with old classmates, even you know mm. people that are not your birding type, and they will see your bird photos, right? And that will influence them. I, th- I think bird photography per se is. Uh, going to grow very hard I, regular birds as we know them like you and me <clears throat> will be in, it will also grow but it will have less it, it may be the motor so to speak but it will have less impact when it comes to uh, big numbers and I, yeah. I think it's very important to actually involve all the people that photograph birds and just starting out getting interested in nature to, and, and maybe have a bit wider uh, definition of what a birder is. I, I don't like the idea that bir- people that photograph birds cannot be called birders. For some reason, some people think that. Right. And uh, so, so uh, I, th- I think we need to be very, very much more inclusive <clears throat> and also include people that like to look at birds in any way they Right. And, and, you know, I, I've always taken the – I like how you mentioned conservation in terms of Facebook and social media because that's the thing. I think if you can make people aware that this stuff exists, they're going to be a lot more interested in it if they know it actually is out there for them to see. Yeah. No, I, th- I, I think it's a very important aspect, and, uh, and we will we'll, we'll get better organized. 
some someone said to me that um, I'm 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 a bit worried. You know, you're looking at the numbers. I was just actually checking up this because I was thinking we were going to talk about it, but you haven't mentioned it yet. Yeah, five life watchers uh, in uh, the two uh, two hundred eleven survey that just came out uh, last year and uh, there's like 71.8 million people uh, participating in wildlife watching in the US mm-hmm. and okay well you said well they're not really birders you know they've just looked at right things in the backyard so be it you know that that's not a problem you know there's of these 68.6 million look at wildlife near their homes uh, so that that's a major major part and, and there's like let me see these numbers here uh, feeding birds uh, feeding birds yeah this is the uh, US Fish and Wildlife yeah. Report yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly well some tremendous uh, feed birds or other li- wildlife 52.8 million right amazing so there's people actually going out of their way you know, to to uh, to uh, make birds uh, or wildlife happier. Right. There's a lot of people out there that care, and and what bothers me a little bit is that not more of these people are involved in organizations such as the ABA or Audubon Society mm-hmm. or or even you know regular donors to the American Birding Conservancy. Why is that? Why 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 aren't there more people doing that when there's actually when we can see these numbers. Yeah. And, and you may say that well they they're not really that much into it, but that doesn't matter. They're sufficiently into it to actually be part of an organization. I think some people say that maybe we don't need organizations anymore. Maybe we're just sufficient on making the networks through Facebook. Maybe, yeah. maybe. You know, I was did last podcast. I talked to Jeff Gordon, you know, president of the ABA, mm-hmm. and you know, he was making he was making kind of the point too that although you know you can look at those numbers that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service put out, and you can say, oh, not all of those people are birders, whatever that definition is. But at the very least, they're people who are interested in wildlife, like you were saying. So, you know, they can be educated about conservation. They're wanting to know these sort of things. So they can be, you know, agents of, of change or, or at least conservation. Yeah, no, no definitely so. Uh, so I, I think it's important, uh, you know, not to lock ourselves in in our old ideas of, how a bird should be, or what, uh, or even what a birding organization should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather look at uh, at these numbers. I I, I will. I, I was also arguing uh, with some birders, and saying that, you know, who who is it that really needs uh, the American Birding Associations? Is it the birders that are already sort of um, already prime birders? They're really good birders. You know, they're right. hardcore, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Are those the ones that need this organization, or are they the people that are just starting out? You know, the people right. that need some items, and 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 the people that could actually do with learning from those that know better. Right. I think there's there's if you only look to sort of retaining your own member, your old members, then uh, it it will be a very stagnant uh, right. stagnant thing. But if you looking out and without pissing off the the old members. Uh, how to renew this sort of situation uh, and, and get more people into birding? That's that's going to be the interesting point because most of the information that the that the experienced birders need is out there to get via other means. 
Right. They don't need. They don't specifically need the American burden necessarily. Right. It's nice to be part of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the gang, you know. Right. And, uh, and that that's an important part as well. But but uh, when when it comes to the actual need in terms of the information that is giving to you. Um, but and I think that's what you know Jeff was talking about. You know how they've they've put in you know considerable attention into the young birders program. You know, trying to get younger birders up. They do the camps, and they're really putting a push there. And you know, starting to attend these festivals that aren't necessarily their own ABA festival, but things like Space Coast. Maybe you're getting some novice people coming into those as well. Yeah, no, I think that's very, very important, and, and, and especially these local birding festivals <clears throat> will be uh, uh, very important grounds for for building new membership. And, and uh, Jeff Gordon has really been doing a great job there for for the ABA. I, 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 I think he's he's uh, he's the catalyst that is going to to make this change. You know? Yeah, I think he was a perfect guy at the perfect time. Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and, and so you know, kind of to wrap it up. Um, you offer these tours. How how long is your average tour? Or is it kind of you do standard package or custom for each client? Or yeah, I mean, so many things you you can see in Peru. So you we uh, we pretty much discuss with the clients. Sometimes they they know what they want, but but in other cases we discuss what you know what is the ideal thing for them to do. Are there any other tours going at the same time that they can? They can join up on, or uh, or do they want something more specified for them? If they say, "Well, we have this time, we want to come to Peru, uh, we'd like to see some birds, we'd like to see some of the culture," well, sudden circuits is really in it. So, um, yeah, we we pretty much uh, customize it to to what the clients what they need. But we're also pooling people into to groups. So right. so if uh, you know that way, you get a get a better price that way. Right. And, and so how, what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you if they're interested in coming to Peru and they want to go birding? And Get on Facebook. No, I'm yeah. just kidding. <laughs> it's not well, a bad way to get a hold of you. <laughs> it's a pretty good way of getting a hold of me. Yeah. No, well, um, the um, we have a website. It's colibriexpeditions.com. It's colibri with a K, colibriexpeditions.com. Uh, I'm also on Skype, of course. Uh, you can use my Skype. And that's Colibricks with two X in the end. Colibricks. Um, and uh, you can phone me, but uh, international charges. Uh, the uh, the, the uh, phone phone number is on the website anyway. All right. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Google Plus. You know, I'm e- I'm easy to get hold of. Uh, if you if you if you just search Gunnar. Uh, on Google and then put birds or something along with that. I'm pretty sure you're going to get my. my you're going to get you. <laughs> it's kind of like if you use my name, you're going to find me. <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's a good thing. So, uh, well, that's... then they have to learn how to spell it, though. That's the problem. <laughs> oh, and pronounce it. <laughs> and pronounce it. How is it? I'm Isonogel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I got it. I got Just it. like it's spelled. Most people All call right. you know, I've heard uh Ickenagle, Ishnoogle. <laughs> you know, there's nothing better when I'm in the airport late for the plane and I hear something, you know, would Rod Ickenagle come to the plane? I'm like, I'm Rod. <laughs> Just get me on. 
Yeah. Well, that's. Well, I have that, I have that with Engblom in Spanish-speaking countries. Four consonants after each other is not the ideal thing for Spanish people. Oh yeah, they just Spanish, stare at Spanish it. People they have no idea how to pronounce it, and then less how to spell it if they have to re-spell it. I've right. seen a lot of versions of that. Well, that's great. Well, you know, Gunner, I think uh, we should we should wrap it up. We try to keep these just just about an hour. So, but thank you so much for your time, and I'll make sure to put all that information on how to get a hold of you in the description for the podcast. And we will chat later. All right, take care, Rad. It's been really good talking. It's to been you. really good talking to you. Have yeah, a good we day. Gotta, we got to see each other again. Take oh, care. we will. Bye bye.